Well, it's Memorial Day. That means that all the Airbnbs are filled in this area. Um, If we're honest, I think we often treat the Holy Spirit like a glorified Airbnb host. We appreciate his work to get us in the door, give us the code, right? We just need to believe in Jesus. Uh, We appreciate it when he helps us in times of emergency, right? But otherwise, stay away. We can be pretty standoffish to the Holy Spirit, I think especially as Presbyterians, and that's to our shame. And as Patrick has said the last few times, uh, the last several weeks, if there ever was a sermon series that's an act of repentance, this is it. We want to be Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to know this person, the person of the Godhead. He's as much God as the Son. He's as much God as the Father. And we are called to love him with all of our being, to be filled with him, to keep in step with him. And so we want to get to know this person better so that we can depend on him more as a church. Uh, A few months ago, we had a staff meeting, and we were tasked to bring a couple uh, pictures from our childhood so that we can kind of pass them around the table and guess who was who. It was fun. Uh, Greg Lieb had a beard at age, like, fourth grade, I think. Fourth grade, right? Where's Greg? Uh, somewhere. I was, I'm kidding. It's like third grade, I think it was. Um, no, but it was really cool because, you know, you just get to see like a glimpse of who these people were that we work with um, when they were kids. Uh, super fun. But of course, you know, a, a picture from way back when doesn't tell you everything about a friend or a person. And in this sermon series, we've, we've seen a few snapshots of the Holy Spirit, if you will. Uh, Patrick began our sermon series by turning to Genesis 1, where we heard the first few lines of the Bible that remind us that the Spirit was active in creation, that he brought order out of chaos, which was the, what we really needed him earlier to do um, when the children were up here with me. Um, he brings order out of chaos. He fills and he fulfills. He forms in creation. That's the Spirit. Uh, he then moved to the Spirit's role in the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, that all the authors of the Bible, over a period of millennia, over a thousand years, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. The ultimate author of the Bible is him. David's prayer in Psalm 51 next showed us that this gnawing sense that we are inadequate, this gnawing sense that we need God's grace, and that God has poured out his love for us, uh, in Jesus, that's the Spirit too. We learned from that from Psalm 51. And then Patrick moved to the role of the Spirit in Jesus' conception and also his early life, that Jesus longed to be in the presence of his Father in the temple, and that we too, by the Spirit, can long, can hunger and thirst after God. That's the Spirit as well. And then last week we saw the Spirit's work in Jesus' temptation and his baptism. Patrick said that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Whether we've given in to temptation, whether we've failed or not, he comes to say, you are my son, you are my daughter, no matter what you've done or not done. That's one of the things he does for us as well. So there's so many pictures of the Holy Spirit to pass around the table, if you will. And in Acts Acts chapter 2, 
uh, Jewish people had gathered um, from the surrounding nations around Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And God did something incredible that still ripples into the church today, around the world today. And two things we're going to look at this morning. What Pentecost reveals about the Holy Spirit and then why it matters for us as late modern Christians. So what it reveals and why it matters. Um, with that said, as we just were talking about, the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. So out of reverence for this God who speaks to us through His Word, I wonder if you might stand for a reading from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, sermons don't change lives. You do. And so we just ask that you would come and speak through me, speak through your word, and lift up Christ. Help us to magnify Jesus. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing, acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, so the first thing we're going to look at is what Pentecost reveals about the Spirit. Just to orient us just a little bit, uh, Pentecost is narrated by Luke. Um, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke to tell all that Jesus began to do and, and teach. That's what the Gospel of Luke is in a nutshell, what Jesus began to do and teach. And the book of Acts, his sequel, is what Jesus continued to do and to teach after he ascended to heaven through the Spirit. Okay, so Acts is really about the about Jesus and what Jesus continued to do through the Holy Spirit. And these uh, 13 verses or so um, are broken into two really simple parts. First, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples, and then the reaction of the crowd. We're going to look at that first part uh, where the Spirit is poured out on the disciples. Let's start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So it says they were sitting in one place, presumably 
uh, the same room where just a few weeks prior, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to his disciples, scared the living daylights out of them, and said, in just a few weeks, stay in Jerusalem, I will pour out my spirit upon you. So he's making good on that promise that he made just a few weeks ago. And scholars also think it's the same room where Jesus had the Last Supper. So you can imagine the Airbnb uh, rent on that one. It'd be crazy. Um, And suddenly it says, a sound from heaven. So the Spirit sends a sound that sounded like a mighty rushing wind, something like a tornado. It wasn't a tornado, but it certainly sounded like one. Um, my wife and I recently rewatched the 1996 action thriller, Twister. Hey guys, it's, it actually holds up still to this day. It's a pre- pretty solid movie. Um, you may remember Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, they star as these sort of crazy scientists who are trying to study tornadoes up close, as close as they can possibly get. And the reason they're studying them is so that they can give uh, people a more advanced warning system so they can predict tornadoes better um, to help save lives. And that's not all that different than what Patrick and I are trying to do in this sermon series. We're trying to understand the Spirit better so that we can, so we can follow Him, so we can keep in step with Him, so we can be filled with Him. But there is a mystery about how He acts. We can't always predict what he's going to do. The Bible says that the Spirit blows where he wishes. So there is a wildness to him. And here's why this is a really good thing. Because many of you, if we pinned you down, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you would say, there's no way if, if you would ask me 20 years ago where I would be today, there's no way I would be sitting in this room with a bunch of Christians but the Holy Spirit came in and upended my life, turned me upside down with his grace and blew through, ripped through my life with the love of Jesus and I've never been the same. So this is why it's a really good thing that we can't always predict what the Spirit's gonna do because all of us can testify if we follow Jesus that he has come after us and turned our lives upside down. Uh, This word, mighty wind, is really important in the Bible. Patrick's talked about it a little bit, but the word wind, breath, spirit are all the same word in Greek. Um, And you already know this, that it appears first in Genesis chapter 1, where the spirit is hovering over the waters, bringing order out of chaos, separating the day from the night, and filling the earth with creation. Uh, Another time it appears is in Exodus 14. And the people of God had just been set free from slavery in Egypt. They had been liberated from captivity, and they were were walking uh, basically out of Egypt, and they run into a dead end called the Red Sea. And before they start freaking out, uh, they realize, uh, they hear a sound, and the sound is an approaching army. It's the Egyptians. They change their mind. They want their slaves back. So then they really start to freak out. And God says, hold on, I'm going to send a wind, a mighty rushing wind to blow all night to separate the Red Sea so you could walk right through the middle of it. So the same word, separating the the wind um, so that they can walk through to safety, that's something the Spirit did in Exodus 14. It also shows up in Ezekiel 37, 
uh, where God takes Elijah to this valley and this vision of a valley of lifeless bones, of lifeless bones. We sang about it just a few minutes ago, and he caused a wind to blow. Same word, the spirit to blow through the valley, and then God um, breathes life on these lifeless bones until they form an army of the Lord. Fast forward nine centuries, the disciples had just laid Jesus' lifeless body in the tomb, and it was sealed shut. The hopes of the disciples were as dead as Jesus' body. But then, miraculously, you know the story, the Spirit breathes life into Jesus, and he bursts forth from the tomb. Romans 8, 11 says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So that's the first thing. This is what I'm trying to get at. The first thing that Pentecost reveals about the Holy Spirit is that he is the vivifier. He is the life giver. You know that the church would be ultimately dead without the Holy Spirit. We would be gathering for no reason other than to remember something in the past, but there would be no present implications. There would be no future hope without the Holy Spirit. The Spirit works to bring the reality of Jesus and what he has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection home to your life. He makes you alive. That's something that he does for us. But there's more. There's more than, than that. Verses 3 through 4, divided tongues as a fire appeared to, to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So again, Luke uses an analogy here. He says something like flames of fire rested upon them, so no smoke alarms were going off or anything. Because throughout the Bible, though, um, fire symbolizes uh, the presence, the holy presence of God. Right? Think of Exodus 3, where God speaks to Moses from a burning bush that looks like it's on fire, and yet it's not being consumed by the flames. And he says, Moses, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So the holy presence of God. And then in Exodus chapter 14, when he leads them through the Red Sea, he says, by night, I'm going to lead you through a pillar of fire to where you need to go. And then in Exodus 40, on the tabernacle, this pillar of fire rests, symbolizing that in the middle of the people is the holy presence of God. The middle of a very rebellious people, by the way, right? He's saying, I'm with you. I'm dwelling in your midst. And so here in Acts chapter 2, in this, this room, flames as a fire rest on these uneducated fishermen from Galilee, and what is that symbolizing? That the holy presence of God, all the way back from Exodus chapter 3, is resting on these men and women in this room. The holy presence of God was with them. Now, you're hearing tongues in a Presbyterian church, um, and you're wondering, uh, when's the sermon on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? Uh, I'm going to let Patrick handle that one. So, um, um, thank you, Patrick, wherever you are. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is a really interesting uh, passage about this sort of like heavenly language that Paul describes. And in those passages, an interpreter is needed every time. 
So scholars agree that this is probably something different than that. Because in this case, uh, uh, an interpreter is not needed for the crowd to understand what God is saying to them in their own language. So this is a little bit different. And I want us to look at the second part of how the the crowd reacts to the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. Let's look at verse 5. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So Luke uh, makes a comment that the crowd was bewildered. They were confused that these uneducated Galileans could speak about God in ways they could understand, in languages they didn't know previously. So they hadn't taken any, like, you know, Spanish immersion classes or, or anything like that. And the crowds were so confused. Like, how, how do you know my language? How can I hear the gospel in ways I can understand? You, you're just a fisherman. And so they were confused by that. Um, you ever been to a country where you didn't speak the language? I'm like, we went, Hannah and I went to Quebec City and... Uh, a few years back, and I had some French, some high school French, uh, in, a long time ago, and I was like, oh, yeah, like, Anne was like, oh, you can speak some French, like, you'll be able to talk, and, uh, and so I, you know, I say, je m'appelle Andrew, and they're like, oh, so you speak English, right? <laughs> like, li- I, I just was trying to, I was just trying to order me some poutine, and they saw right through me, right? <laughs> um, you know, confusion, it, it rains when we can't communicate. When we cannot communicate with one another, confusion reigns. And uh, in Genesis chapter 11, uh, a huge crowd had gathered, um, and they were trying to reach heaven uh, by building a huge tower, the Tower of Babel. They were trying to make a name for themselves. And the story goes that God confuses their language so they could no longer communicate, and the whole operation shuts down, just like that. Uh, a theologian named Christopher Walken, um, not, not that Christopher Walken, but uh, Christopher Watkin, um, he wrote about a painting uh, about the Tower of Babel. Uh, it's by Peter Bruegel from 1563. And he said some interesting things I want to draw out about this really cool painting you can see here. Um, he said that the painter uh, weaved together motifs from throughout uh, history, including the Roman Colosseum. You can see that. Uh, there at the top of the painting, uh, to show that this Babel instinct to build towers for ourselves is ever-present in fallen humanity. And the figure in the bottom left, you can kind of see him there, something of a king, presumably, and has definitely made something of a name of himself, with some uh, folks even bowing down to him as if he were a god. But you can see, uh, there's another picture, Um, you can sort of see it in this one, but um, if you can go to the next slide uh, with the arrow, that's, uh, you can see how there's, the tower is falling apart. Um, The tower is starting to lean uh, and even fall into ruin. And, you know, as a sort of monument of pride and hubris. Why Why am I bringing this up? At Pentecost, the Spirit of God 
did something of a reversal of Babel. Instead of building towers to, um, instead of building a tower, what did the Spirit do? He built bridges. He built bridges between people who would never have communicated otherwise. He built a bridge. People were miraculously connected and not divided by the church. Now, this list of 15 countries, they were all surrounding the, the nation of Israel. And there were people from, um, who were Jewish people who had been living there. They had come upon it. Um, but why all these names? It's, it's to remind us that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says that the Great Commission would begin, the, the church would begin in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And so Acts chapter 2 is God making good of that promise that it will start in Jerusalem. All these Jews had gathered um, to, for, this, to, for this Pentecost uh, feast. And then from there, it would go out to the whole world. That's what the Spirit does. He is the cosmic bridge builder between Jesus' followers and the whole wide world. He gives life. He builds bridges. Um, But I know what you're thinking. We're in a room. Uh, There aren't any flames over our heads. And there's no wind whipping through this one. So what difference does Pentecost make today? What does it have to do with 21st century Christians? And that's my final point. What the difference that Pentecost makes in our lives. Um, I want to be really careful when I uh, get into Acts chapter 2 and kind of bringing it into our moment because whole denominations, whole Christian movements have been built on their interpretation of Acts chapter 2. So it's really important for me to be careful in how I explain what does this have to do with us. I want to say up front that Pentecost is, is a unique and unrepeatable event with present implications. So it's a unique and unrepeatable event, much like the cross and the resurrection and the ascension are unique and unrepeatable events with present implications. And, and here's what I'm getting at. We aren't meant to take from this descriptive narrative and make it prescriptive in two important ways. So we aren't meant to take what happened then and apply it to our own experience with the Holy Spirit in two important ways. The first disciples, they had to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They had to wait a a period of weeks before the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. They had already placed their faith in Christ. They were already followers of Jesus. They were already saved. And yet they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. This is not our experience. When you place your faith in Christ, when you confess that you need him, that you are a sinner in need of God's grace, the Holy Spirit doesn't wait for the escrow to come in. He doesn't wait for the moving truck to show up. He comes into your heart instantaneously. He sets up residence right then and there and forever. He doesn't wait. He comes in when you place your faith in Jesus. Um, The Puritan theologian John Owen said this, when the Holy Spirit brings a sinner to put his faith in Christ, his heart is also filled by the same Holy Spirit with a holy desire to wholeheartedly obey Christ and turn from all sin. 
those thus converted to Christ are on their confession or profession of faith admitted into the society of the church and into all the mysteries of faith. So when we confess our need for Jesus, the Spirit immediately moves into our lives. He doesn't wait. The second thing that we aren't meant to make uh, prescriptive for our experience is that a mighty wind and, a, and flames of fire probably won't appear in your room. They didn't, and how do we know this? Not just from our experience, because probably that didn't happen to you, but even in the rest of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul, his conversion didn't have anything that had no tornado-like wind, and it didn't have a flame of fire over him. His, his conversion was very different. And then the, the person named Lydia, her conversion was, lacked those two things, and the Philippian jailer, too, just to name a few examples. So we, we aren't meant to take their experience and say, okay, why is my experience so different? And here's what I want to say. Their conversions, Paul, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, and your conversion, if you're a follower of Jesus, is no less supernatural than what the, the Christians in Acts chapter 2 experienced. Because dead hearts coming back to life is a, is a miracle. Following Jesus in the 21st century instead of following after our heart or following the way of the world is a miracle of God. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you aren't supposed to look back and say, oh man, I wish I had that. You're supposed to say, thank God that he's still working in the world. Thank God that the Holy Spirit is at work in my life and warming me up with the fire of God's love day after day. I like analogies. I kind of think in those terms a lot of times. Um, a Dutch theologian and politician uh, from the early 20th century, his name was Abraham Kuyper. He used a great analogy. Okay, so how do we bring this into our world? He used a great analogy to illustrate the experience of the Spirit before and after Pentecost. So I want you to picture a reservoir. I actually put one up here for you. Uh, here's the North Fork uh, Reservoir up near Black Mountain, and it supplies a lot of the water for Buncombe County. Kuiper says this, Suppose that a city whose citizens for ages have been drinking each from his own cistern. Okay, so let me pause there. That's kind of like the Old Testament, the Old Covenant of grace. Some people experience the Spirit. David is a good example. Some of the kings experience the Spirit but it was few and far between, okay? So drinking from your own system, cisterns is kind of a way to think about that. But then, again, going, getting back into the analogy, uh, the, the city proposes to construct a, a reservoir that will supply every home. And when the work is completed, the water is allowed to run through the system of mains and pipes into every house. That's what we have. He says, here we notice two things. The distribution of the water took place but once, which was the formal opening of the waterworks, and could take place but once, while the distribution of the water in the upper city, although extraordinary, was but an after effect of the former event. This is a fair illustration of what took place in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So it was to the Jews first in Acts chapter 2, and then in Acts chapter 10 and 14, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles, and that's why we're here. So he's saying that's an after effect of the initial opening of the reservoir, if you will. And so I want to just 
give you four super quick implications of, of what, this, what difference it can make in our lives before we pray. The first thing, Pentecost means that you and I should drink deeply of the Spirit every day. Drink deeply of the living water as, as Christ called the Holy Spirit in John 7. The Holy Spirit is the living water of God to refresh us. Some of you are thirsty spiritually. Some of you are dry. Drink deeply of the Spirit. How do we do that? We pray. We ask Him to fill us up. Ephesians chapter 4. We read the word that He has given us, that He inspired to give us, to be filled with him. But how do we know if we're filled? So we can do some things, but how do we know if we're filled? The second thing, second implication, Pentecost means that God is still bringing life out of death by the Spirit. So he's still making dead people alive today. He's still making seas into highways. He's still making graves into gardens. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, do we expect too little? Do you expect too little from him? Do I? And I think a sermon like this is supposed to help us to remind us that he is still making dead things alive with his grace. And if you're lifeless today, ask him to kindle your heart. Ask him. Tell him honestly. You know that Jesus can only transform the real you. He can't transform the false you, the pretend you, the religious you. He can't transform that person, but he can transform the real, the dry one, the tired one, the exhausted one, the sinful one who can't get over this besetting sin in your life that's robbing you of joy and meaning. Tell him and see what he'll do. Thirdly, Pentecost means we're life-giving and warm. And many of us, when we hear that, we're like, come on, that's not me. Life-giving and warm, yeah, right? I'm introverted, I'm shy, I'm kind of gruff, whatever. I'm kind of awkward. Um, but it's actually not you. It's him. Remember that. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the one that makes us life-giving. He's the one who makes us warm people. We don't have to know every answer to every question our unbelieving friends or family have, but we have been given the fire of his spirit to warm up every room and every conversation. Candles, not floodlights. Candles, think candles, not floodlights. To warm up the room to warm up the room so you can see Jesus clearly. When you look at a floodlight, it blinds you. We need to be candles because of the Spirit. Fourth and finally, Pentecost means we build bridges and not towers for ourselves. A, f- a friend of mine shared that for years he didn't feel welcome in the church because he felt like everybody was so similar and he stuck out like a sore thumb. And so he felt like this, the church wasn't for him. How often as religious people, we erect towers to make people 
feel like they have to become like us, talk like us, think like us, act like us, or else get out. Look at us. Churches, so much of the time, and Lord, protect us from this, become brands instead of people of God declaring the wonderful works of God to the world that need to hear them so desperately. Lord, protect us that we wouldn't build a tower that people feel like they have to climb up to belong here, but rather that we would build bridges to each other to learn to speak the language of those uh, in, our, in our midst, to speak the language of our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, so they can hear about God in ways they can understand. If you can't do that yet, that's okay. Ask the Spirit to help you speak to your brother. Ask the Spirit to help you speak to your mom who doesn't know Jesus and just seems to have a, a block, a mental block between her and Jesus. Help, Spirit, come and help. And he promises to give you the words when you need it. Do we share the words of Jesus like Jesus would say them if he were us? Think about that. Do you share the truth of the gospel in the ways that Jesus would share them if he were you? Uh, to borrow a metaphor, you know in texting, right? You're like, oh man, that period, that really, that was pretty uh, direct. Or that exclamation point, whoa, man, slow down. You know, we don't have intonation. We don't have facial expressions when we're texting or when we're emailing. And so how do we sort of think about this? How do you know if you're saying the things of Jesus the way that Jesus would say them if he were you? The fruit of the Spirit is present as you're sharing the truth, is love, is joy, is peace, is patience, is kindness, is goodness, is faithfulness, is self-control. That's how we build bridges today. We're not just saying the truth like a floodlight that's blinding people. No, like a candle. We're warming up the room. We say the words of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, in the ways that Jesus would say them. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is present as we're sharing the truth of the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. That's the Spirit. He builds bridges, not towers. The late Tim Keller did this better than most. Uh, you may know that um, he died just over a week ago. Some of you are like, who's Tim Keller? He was basically the C.S. Lewis of our day. Some of you are like, who's C.S. Lewis? And I'll pray for you. Come up and uh, talk to me afterwards. I've got lots to share with you. Awesome stuff. Amazing, amazing witness for Jesus and his kingdom. I have been fighting tears for over a week about this man. I just, I want to see a show of hands, just curious. If your walk with Jesus has been impacted in any way by Tim Keller, I'd love for you just to raise your hand. Wow. Amazing. Now, this man was, he did something that we see in Acts chapter 2. He had the fire of God in him a love for God, but he also had a fiery love for people. And you know how we know that? Because he made it plain. He made it accessible to people who didn't have any interest in church, didn't have any interest in Christianity. He tried to make it as clear and as simple for them as possible. Not to dumb it down, but to build a bridge. 
I want us to watch just a few minutes, two or three minutes of his final address to his church that he planted in New York City about 34 years ago. It turns out to be his last time he addressed them. And I want you to just listen in, listen in to what the Holy Spirit did in him, um, listen in to what the Holy Spirit did through him, but more importantly, what the Holy Spirit can do in each of us, because that's what he does. He changes us to build bridges, to make us life-giving people. So let's watch this. If Redeemer continues to be a church like we were in the beginning, a church not just for ourselves, but for our friends who don't believe in Christ, not just church as usual, but a church that radically gospel-centered, we will be most relevant to the rest of the world. Three pits of advice from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, the first bit of advice is live on razor's edge. Live on the razor's edge. Many of you have heard me say this before, but <laughs> Jeremiah 29 says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You say, what razor's edge? The Babylonians took the Jews to Babylon in order to destroy their culture, to destroy their faith. They assumed that if they moved into the city, they would assimilate, and their children, or certainly their grandchildren, would worship the Babylonian gods and just lose their identity as uh, Israel, as the people of God. And there were people who said, okay, we don't want that to happen, so when we get to Babylon, because we've been taken there by force, let's stay outside. Let's stay outside so we can keep our identity. And the Lord <laughs> says to them, I want you to move into the city, but I want you to keep your identity. I want you to increase the numbers and keep your faith, but at the same time, I want you to engage. I want you to seek its peace and prosperity. I want you to pray to the Lord for it. I want you to love it. That's a razor's edge. Engage, but at the same time, be different. Don't assimilate and just pick up all the views of the culture. But don't stay out, keep your skirts clean, denounce everybody. No. Live on the razor's edge. Number two, invest, don't just consume. Invest, don't just consume. Lastly, forget about your reputation. Jeremiah 45.5, this is what Jeremiah says to his secretary, Baruch. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Genesis 11 tells us that people tend to go to the city to make a name for themselves. They get excited. They're going to come. They're going to do well in their work. And by the way, ministers very often come to New York City to make a name for themselves. Just letting you know that. You know, I gotta, I'm a minister in New York City. I'm cool. I'm going to do well here. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about your credentials. Ministers do not identify. Don't make your ministry success your identity. So this, if things don't go well, you just feel like an utter failure. You just freak out. People don't make getting a big name in New York City your main thing. Lift up Jesus' name. Hallowed be thy name. Forget yourself. Forget your reputation. Do what you can to lift up God's name. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Even New Yorkers, of course, all New Yorkers are seeking great things for themselves. No, no. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not.
Whew, fighting back tears again. I'll end with this. My friend said, if Keller was just a glimpse of Jesus, and he was that, then we are all going to lose our minds when we see Jesus one day. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for this church that we would build bridges and not towers to ourselves, not tower to the name of grace, but that we would lift high the name of Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. He lifts high the name of Jesus. Humble us, Lord. Protect us. When we get off track, get us back on with your Spirit. Jesus is where all the life and joy and meaning in the universe is found. So help us to, to love him most and to witness with love to the people who are so hungry and thirsty, even if they don't know it, for you. Be in our midst now as we enjoy your presence the one who died for us. We pray in his name.